Make your way to the gospel according to Luke. Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. Our text this morning is going to be verse 1 through verse 20. And the title of the message is, The Savior is Born. We've been singing wonderfully this morning about this precious event. This wonderful event of Christ coming into the world. And I am uh, thankful that we have a season that recognizes that. That we focus in on that. It reminds us of, uh, of the, uh, the sacred coming of Jesus to redeem us from our sins. And so we're going to read about his birth and, uh, and the things that took place around that here in this passage of Scripture. And I pray that we can glean some things from it and that it would encourage us here this morning. Notice Luke chapter one, excuse me, chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. We'll come down through verse number 20. The Bible says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You know, you think about children being born into the world. Countless children are born into this world. Every day a new child takes its first breath of life. And you know, when you have your own children, you might wonder what kind of person they will be, what kind of uh, person they'll grow up to be, what they'll do with their life. Many, all, all children grow up to do something, and we could think of different things we might wish our children could do, and uh, things in which we might think they might impact the world in this way or that way or whatever you may think. But when you come to think about the child that we see here known as Jesus, there's only one child born into this world that supersedes all the other children that have ever been born. And that child is this one. 
It's baby Jesus. It is this child that's placed in the manger. You see, this is the one particular child in which uh, we find that the parents were told ahead of time exactly who he was going to be and exactly what he was going to do. The parents already know the future of their child because God has told them. Not only has God told them directly in these announcements, but it's already been foretold of him by the prophets long ago. And so in our text, we have the birth of that wonderful child. This child named Jesus, who would not be like all the other children born into this world. He was not conceived like all the others. He was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of God. This child is not the seed of a man. He is the seed of God and indeed is the Son of God. God himself coming into humanity in flesh. We see just a couple references I'll note for you quickly and then we'll get into our notes. Firstly, we understand that Mary was told about Christ in Luke 1.33, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. They know that their child is the king. Joseph was told that she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He is told that he would be a savior. What a glorious combination that is, and we'll see that as we come into our text. But notice what we see with the birth of the Savior coming into the world. In our notes, I'll have you note a couple things that will come from this text for us. Number one is this. I want you to recognize the providence of his birth and how it happens. The providence of God in his birth. Notice, there, firstly, that there is a decree here. There's a decree in the land that would in turn fulfill prophecy about the birth of Jesus. This decree that we read of happens according to providence. You say, well, what is providence? Providence is God's plan and interaction with his creation to accomplish his purposes. It is his hand at work in the details of life and world and, and history to accomplish that which he has planned. It is his sovereign prerogative to do so. And so here's what we find. Is that God had determined before creation to send his son into the world to be the redeemer of the world. To be the savior of sinners like you and I. And in God's perfect time, and always note that God's timing is perfect. In God's perfect time... The announcement came to Mary, and in his perfect time, the conception was realized in Mary, and in his perfect time, the delivery comes to pass. Now, I want to point out some things about this. Luke begins in verse 1 by saying, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, Augustus. In those days, this decree went out. Why is that important? Well, because Luke, you understand, he doesn't say once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, if you're a Star Wars fan, he says, in those days. Luke isn't presenting some fairy tale story. You know, there are many who view the manger scene and this, this, this message of Christ being born into the world as, as just any other fairy tale story that others have come up with, like it's some kind of a mythical thing. Luke here intentionally gives us actual record of history 
of things happening in the world, people who were ruling, things they said, decrees they made for the purpose of showing us that this is real history with real people and real places. The birth of Jesus isn't mythical. It is not fantasy. It is part of God's redemptive history. As A.T. Pearson rightly said, history is his story because God is the sovereign. He governs all of history. And it should be noticed and cherished by us that today God governs history and he brings his purposes to pass. God says through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. There's only one God, friend, and it's the one true God here we're reading of in the scriptures. And here's what the one God does. He says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Who in the world could ever have the power to precisely dictate certain events to happen ahead of time? Only the one true God, the God who is eternal, the God who has all power, the God who transcends time and is not bound to time. He is the Almighty. And who and what do we see in this historical time frame? In verse 1, we read that Caesar Augustus put out a decree that all the world should be taxed. All the world, meaning the region and occupation of Rome within those immediate vicinities. Luke adds a little historical note here in verse 2 that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All of this is important because it is a real historical decree, just like any other real history that is written and pinned down that we cherish. But here's what I want you to see, is that Caesar's decree here is done in accordance with a decree that was given long before Caesar was ever born. You see, God decreed that Caesar would put forth this, this, this registration at this particular time and in this particular way. You say, well, how does that work? Proverbs 21.1, listen to this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. What you find in this text is we see the sovereign hand of God working interwoven with the voluntary actions of men. You say, well, how's that harmonized? Take that up with the Lord. I don't have the answer to that. There's one thing I can't deny is that God is sovereign over everything. And at the same time, he's given us as human beings the ability to make choices and decisions. And Caesar Augustus here he thinks, I'm going to make this decree, but little does he know that he's actually doing what God decreed long ago. And it's all for a bigger purpose here. It's all for a more important purpose here. To what purpose does God have Caesar give such a decree? Why would this decree be so important at this specific time? This decree was given for the purpose of bringing Joseph and Mary from Nazareth down to this little town of Bethlehem. God wanted them there. Now, verse 3 and 4, we find why he's there, because he's of the house and lineage of David. 
But you look at verse 5 and what happens. Verse 5 shows us that he took Mary with him. He took Mary with him. Now, Mary wasn't required to be there with him while he's going to register for this. Could have left her at home and said, honey, I'll be back in, well, not a few days if that kind of journey. Be back in a week or so, maybe. But instead, he brings his wife with him. Is there maybe a reason why he doesn't leave Mary behind? What does the Bible describe about Mary at this particular point in time? The Bible tells us that she's with child. And some translations say she's great with child. In other words, she's about to give birth. She's close. She's getting closer to the time of giving birth to this child that is Jesus that she is conceived with. You see, they didn't have modern-day communication or transportation back then. It's not like he could go down to, to go down to Bethlehem and hop in his car and be back at Nazareth in an hour. No, they traveled by foot or by donkey or camel or horse, whatever they could afford. Now, I can tell you this. If Mary were to go into labor while Joseph was in Bethlehem and she's in Nazareth, that would be quite risky. That might present a problem. You see, any time that Bethany has ever been near time of giving birth, there's not anywhere I want to go but to be far from her. I'm going to be near her. I'm going to be on guard. I'm going to be ready to help her in any way I can because I know that giving birth, it's not some light matter. She needs her husband there. She needs her help meet there to help her with that. And so Bethlehem from Nazareth, that's a trip that's about 85 to 90 miles with no vehicles or flights or trains. They come together. Why does God want Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem at this point in time? Both of them for the express purpose that Mary gives birth to Jesus in this town of Bethlehem. I said, well, why would God want him to be born in Bethlehem? What difference does it really make? Why couldn't he just be born in Nazareth or maybe somewhere along the way back home? Because God had already told the exact place in which the Messiah would be born and come out of. If you look in your Bible to the prophet Micah, go backwards to the minor prophet known as Micah. And if you look with me at chapter 5 and verse 2, you're going to see a very significant prophecy concerning your Savior today and his birth. The prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old. From ancient days. The prophet is declaring that though Bethlehem is this little, somewhat insignificant town among Judah, out of Bethlehem would come one who is eternal, one whose goings forth have been from ancient of days. That's a language of eternal, have everlasting. This is none other than the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. You know, I see all kinds of scoffers and mockers on social media today, many of them who, who declare, Jesus did not fulfill any prophecies whatsoever. Really? There's hundreds concerning Jesus that he fulfills to the very dot of the I and cross of the T. <laughs> you understand that the fulfillment of prophecy in Christ's first coming 
is credentials that this man named Jesus truly is the one God promised. Only he, only he has fulfilled and did fulfill these promises, these prophecies. And so if Jesus had been born in any other place, you understand the word of God would have been compromised along with the sovereign character of God. It is not possible for him to be born in any other place. You'll notice as we come down through our text, did Joseph and Mary realize before they came to Bethlehem that this is where Jesus was supposed to be born? I tend to think not. I think they're simply going about life and what's happening, and they don't realize this prophecy connection exactly. Maybe they were preparing for, for, a, for, for, a, for birth in, in Nazareth. Maybe they had a place set up. We don't know. But in verse 6, what do we read? The Bible says that while they were there, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. What a coincidence, right? You know how I feel about coincidences. There is no coincidence with God. It is only providence. While they were there, just happens to be that she's there and it's time for her to give birth. And you know what? When the baby's coming, the baby's coming. You ain't going back to Nazareth. You're going to have it where you're at. I'll never forget when Bethany was pregnant with David, and, and we were getting close to that time. We were at the doctor's office, and there, water breaks, and guess what happens when the water breaks? Baby's coming. Literally, within two hours, David was here. There wasn't, going, there wasn't no going back home. There wasn't going there, going to do this. It was time. And providentially, I was thankful that we were already at the hospital and didn't have to worry about driving down the road and listening to her screaming and trying to figure out things. I mean, my goodness. There's some people I've seen, they've, they've had babies in the car. And I'm, that's, I'm, I'm, y'all pray for us as we get ready for that, that time in May that that don't happen. Mary is there because God has appointed this is the time and the place for God the Son to be born in the city of David. This decree fulfilled prophecy. But letter B, notice that the delivery of the Lord was perfect. It was perfect. I mean, you just you, you look at what happens here. It is absolutely perfect because what God does, uh, understand, it is perfect. In verse 7, the Bible says that she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, this is significant. Why is that? Because one firstborn is a title in their culture and identifies Jesus as the preeminent heir in that Jewish culture. Mary would have other sons, but guess what? Jesus is the first. Jesus is the first. But secondly, this also indicates that she had no other children before him and had never been sexually active either. You see, the virgin conception and birth of Jesus is crucial to the gospel message. There are many today that want to deny the virgin conception. To deny the virgin conception is to deny a sinless Savior, and you cannot have salvation without a sinless Savior. You just can't have it. The virgin birth, the virgin conception of Jesus, it's foundational. It's one of those non-negotiables. There's no wiggle room when it comes to this. Because if he was not virgin born, if she had been sexually active, that would give possibility to this child being that of Adam's nature rather than that of God's. And what do we see? Find plain in the scriptures 
that Jesus' name would be called Emmanuel. And as Matthew 1.23 points out to us, Emmanuel means what, church? God with us. God with us. R.C. Sproul celebrates, or writes this and quotes, we, what we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God himself. What's Mary do with this divine baby? She wraps him in swaddling clothes or cloth. How are you going to pronounce that? Those swaddling cloths were strips of white cloth. And in ancient times, these strips of white cloth were used to wrap babies to keep them warm and make them secure, much like they do in hospitals today. They have a certain thing they wrap around the baby. But the difference is that this cloth used for the baby is similar to the same cloth that they would use to wrap the bodies of the dead. How ironic. What a picture and foreshadow we see here. What do we see happen with Jesus' body after he had died on the cross and been taken to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? Matthew 27, 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. That shroud is fabric made from linen. It's a linen cloth, just like Mary uses here in this text. You see, even at the birth of Jesus, we see the foreshadow of the reason he's coming into the world. Jesus is the baby, the child of God. He is born to the world to die. That's his mission. He is born to live the life we could not live so that he may die the death we deserve to die, pay the penalty we could never pay, and conquer the grave, something we could never conquer. Jesus said this, and he knew this in his own ministry. In Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Charles Spurgeon comments here and says, Those little arms in the manger will one day grapple with the monster death and destroy it. Amen, Christian. I, I praise God for that. This is why him coming and why his birth is to be celebrated. Because of what he came to do. It's all about his mission. What he came to do on behalf of sinners like you and I. And so Mary takes baby Jesus and what she do with him? She lays him in a manger. What was this manger? This manger was a box or crib where animals feed. In other words, it's a feeding trough. You know, today when we're going to have children, we go to Walmart or whatever store you want to go, and we know we pick out a crib and we get it all decored and soft and cozy and, and ready for the baby, right? Imagine going down to Tractor Supply and picking out a feed trough to take home. So that's going to be your crib. This is what Jesus is laid in. He's not given some extravagant entrance into the world. He's laid in the very place where animals feed. Now, some portray this as a stable, and it may have been, and you'll see that often in today's in, in, in Christmas pictures and decor and all of that, but I also know that many people used small caves as, as places for their animals and feeding. It's very possible that they're in this small cave nearby because there was no place in the inn for them. But maybe it's another stable. We don't know. But one thing we do know is that regardless of, of what we see here, where they're at, what does this picture show us? It shows us a very lowly picture. A very lowly picture. You understand that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, 
the eternal word who spoke all things into existence comes into the world and lowers himself, even as a baby, to be laid in a low place. You see, Jesus came into the world as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, let us not think that this is some terrible circumstance or coincidence for for the whole picture of Jesus' life from His birth to His death is that of lowliness on behalf of us. He did not come here to be, to be, be enthralled with riches and, 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 and all the things that the world wants, wants to have. He came here as the lowly Savior. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. How, how rich was Jesus prior to his incarnation? And there's no measurement to that. He owns everything. He owns everything. But he submitted himself, in a sense, to poverty in this world for the sake of dying, as, if a, as a criminal would die, for the sake of enriching us, as Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says, that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons. We've been redeemed by his blood, friend. Christian, we have yet to fathom the riches that we have in Christ. But all of that is ours only because he who is infinitely rich became poor on behalf of us. He entered the world into a lowly state to accomplish salvation. He said, could not Mary and Joseph have found a better place? You understand there was no better a place than this. They tried the Bethlehem Inn, comfort suites of Bethlehem. But scripture says there was no place for them in the inn. That place was crowded because of the demanded registration and tax. There was no rooms. Man, that's frustrating. Going to a hotel, no rooms. Especially if you're tired, you've been traveling. But all of this is according to the perfect providence of God. All of it ties together to the very picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Notice with me number two. We see the providence of his birth. But notice, number two, the pronouncement of his birth. And I love how this transitions to the scene of the shepherds. I love this scene. Probably one of the more common scenes during this Christmas season. But notice that the message here, the message came to lowly shepherds about Jesus being born. The message came to lowly shepherds. And I I preached last year on an emphasis of the shepherds in a a previous message last year about this time. Don't remember when. But let's rehearse just a little bit some of these things. You know, Luke continuing this narrative, you look at verse 8. The Bible says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. You see, shepherds for long periods of time would be out in the wilderness, away from communities and society. Typically, shepherds were closer to civilization as the months got a little colder. March to November, typically, or, or excuse me, yeah, between November and March. So the message comes to them while they're out in the field, and it seems that they're not too far. They're in the same region. Now, we don't know the exact time when Jesus was born. 
And I know that sometimes there's a lot of debate about that, but it's really not worth debating. He was born. <laughs> Whether you believe he's in the springtime or the wintertime, it doesn't matter. But what we find here is that the shepherds, they're nearby, and what we find with them is that they have come, they, they get to hear about this announcement. And what happens with them is fascinating. Verse 9, the Bible says, The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I want you to kind of picture the scene. Picture the experience of the shepherds. You're just, they're just out there minding their business, tending to their sheep, watching their flock by night. And then all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shines around them. That means it's encompassing them. It's shown all around them. Remember, it's dark and it's shining at night. All right? So think, think about that scene in that sense. And what we find here is that this is often known and described as the Shekinah glory. Sometimes God would manifest His glory visibly through light or a cloud or, or a fire or some other physical manner. One example you'll see is Exodus 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And when the people experienced such glory, it always struck them at their heart. They were always overwhelmed with a holy fear of God. And such is the case for these shepherds. The manifestation for the shepherds was a blazing bright light manifesting God's glory. And what does it say about them? The Bible says that they were filled with great fear. Filled with great fear. What would be our own reaction if you were in that position? How would your response be if all of a sudden the glory of God's light overwhelms you? Shines round about you? I think we all would be filled with great fear. But thankfully, understand that they didn't have to fear in the sense that God's judgment was falling on them. That's one form of fear. But what we find is that they began to get comforted by this great news from the angel. Verse 10. Here's what the angel says. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Now, here's, I want to point out this. The fact that this message comes to the shepherds is a message in itself. You say, well, why is that? Because the shepherds were commonly categorized with all the other lowly, sinful, no-good-for-nothing people in that society. Tax collectors and even the Romans. They were despised trades. In the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral law, and in the Talmud, which was other Jewish written law. They were despised in their trade. So shepherds had a reputation and, and were thought of to be the lower class of people and lower occupations. But despite the shepherd's status, who do the angels come to with this news? They come to these shepherds. These lowly shepherds. And this points out to us, friend, that God does not give respect to higher or lower classes in societal terms. The Bible tells us in Romans 2.11 that God shows no partiality. He's not going to give more gospel to someone because they're rich and have accomplished a lot than he does to someone who's lower and hasn't had a whole lot in life. You understand, really, there... 
there would be no class of people in which the gospel would not reach. This is what he says. This is good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. There's no class of people limited from the gospel's reach. The gospel reaches everyone from the top to the bottom, or rather the bottom to the top, including these lower class shepherds. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Because I'm sure no higher class, according to the world standards. But yet, the gospel reached me, just as a young boy. And it reached you where you are, despite who you are and all that you've done in your sin. And this truly is the truth. If you think that you're a higher class above other people, you're just wrong. You know why? Because it doesn't matter who you are in this world, every single one of us has the same sinful nature. Accountable to the same holy God. And on the day of judgment, it doesn't matter what your status was in this world. What matters is whether you know Christ or not. That's the only thing that matters. Every human being breathing God's air is fallen in sin and needs the Savior. And thus it shows us how Christ has lowered himself from his heavenly glory to take on humanity for us who have been so lowly, so lowly fell in our own sins. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, see how low he fell to lift us from our fall. Consider that truth for yourself today. Consider how far Christ lowered himself for you. For you. Notice with me, letter B, that the message revealed the Lord's salvation. We see it came to the lowly shepherds, but notice it reveals the Lord's salvation in verse 11. Notice what the good news is. Here's the good news. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What better news could there be than that? You understand that the word gospel, we've mentioned gospel quite often, the word gospel literally means good news. Well, good news of what? Right here. The good news, the gospel, is that of the Savior coming into the world to save sinners. And notice that the angel says it is unto you, Unto you, meaning that, that Christ's birth, the birth of Christ is for them. They are called out by God to go see this Savior in whom they would also believe. You understand, the message of salvation is unto you also if you believe. And here is what every listener needs to see. It is the personal mandate of the gospel because it is you who needs the Savior. It is you. It is me. It is us. It is you who needs the Savior because it is you who is lost in sin. It is you who are accountable to God. It is you who deserve death. It is you who deserve eternal punishment. The gospel is individual. You understand. You're not right with God because grandma and grandpa go to church. You yourself need Christ. You need Jesus. It is individual because you are the sinner. I am the sinner. I needed Christ and I realized that. And I came to believe at a young age of seven. God convicted me, drew me, brought me to, to faith in Christ. I knew it was for me because I was the sinner. And Jesus is the only Savior. Today I hope that you see that. If you're sitting here and you have yet to be saved. That this gospel, it's not just something us church people need. It's what you need. It's what you need. You'll notice 
that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. See, Paul's describing his gospel work and toiling and laboring to get the gospel to people. Because he's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. You understand the, the message of salvation. It is given to all people without distinction, without distinction of class or race or skin color or any other thing, just like these shepherds. But you understand that this salvation message, it will only apply to those who actually do believe. God doesn't save everyone. He saves those who are believers. The Greek word here translated especially may also be translated as that is to say, as can be elsewhere seen in Paul's letters. So Paul is clarifying the all people as those who believe in Christ. So understand this. If you believe in Christ, understand that Christ is your Savior. Believe on Him. That is the call and command to you. Believe on Christ. Trust in Him. Look to Him alone. You see, it is not enough simply to recognize the events of the gospel as true. There are a lot of people who are going to, this holiday season, they'll see the mangers like, oh, yay, that's wonderful. And they'll come to church even for Christmas and say, oh, that was great. They recognize the events. They don't have any problem with them, but they're not really born-again believers. It's not enough just to recognize these things as events. You must be born again. Spiritual rebirth happens in the heart, and it is intertwined with belief. It is what actually gives us belief. Spurgeon rightly said, only those who are born again can claim the babe in Bethlehem. You'll notice the angel says that this baby is a savior. What is a savior? We all know this. He is one who rescues. He is a deliverer, a preserver. Who needs a Savior? All of us, including these shepherds. These shepherds would have known the Savior to come. Now they are receiving the announcement that He has come. And how fitting it is that the message of salvation comes to these shepherds for yet another reason. Because what is Jesus to us as our Savior? He is the Good Shepherd. Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And all of his people are his sheep. So salvation has come because the good shepherd has come. But not only is he called the Savior. Notice what else the angels call him. They call him Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. You know, we just sung and it stuck out to me again. In our song singing, one of the hymns goes like, Christ, the Lord at your birth. You know what that tells us and what this tells us here? Christ didn't become Lord later. He's Lord as a baby. You know, everybody else in authority in this world, they grow and they have to work their way up to a position of authority and prestige. Christ is born with that. He's born as Lord. He is Lord. He is King. So, so you understand that the shepherds, they would have been familiar with the word Christ. It's, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means the fulfiller of Israelite expectation, a deliverer, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so the angelic message declares that Christ is the Lord. 
He's the same Lord who's always been the Lord over his people Israel. The same one who created them. The same one who delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And now he's coming to the world to save sinners from spiritual bondage. Verse 12 we read. The angel gives them the sign of how to find him. How exactly would they find Jesus? How are they supposed to find a baby? Here's what they say. This will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. How many babies do you think were hanging out in mangers in Bethlehem that night? Not a whole lot. That shows them, one, they need to look where the animals are. And two, when they find a place where the animals are and there's a baby there in the manger, there he is. That's him. That's how they're going to find him. And so what do we find with this? We find that they get this sign, and then in verse 13 through 14, we find another phenomenal scene. Look at this. And suddenly. I love that. It means it just happens instantly. Suddenly. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Praising God and saying. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. Can you imagine this multitude of angels. Singing. Lifting up this praise and this adoration. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. What a sound and what a sight that must have truly been. You know, we often, we, we enjoy when we hear a multitude of people singing. You know, we had good singing this morning. Everybody engaged in song. You go to maybe a place where there's more people singing in in unison. How glorious that is. It's a little foretaste of heaven. You understand that? There's angels that continually and nonstop praise God in heaven. And you and I are going to be among that someday. And here they get just a little foretaste of that in this scene. And so we read on. Verse 15 and 16, we read that they went with haste to see the Savior born in Bethlehem. Wouldn't we all be urgent to get there? I know I would. <laughs> I wouldn't be stopping at red lights. I'd be running through them. Go on. I'm just kidding. They didn't have red lights back then, but you know what I mean. I'd be in a hurry. I'd be in a hurry. Which brings us to number three, the praise of his birth. And I'll just be a few minutes here. and almost done, I promise. Here's a couple applications. His birth should be magnified to the world, Christian. That's what the church is here to do, especially this time of year. Verse 17, we find that the shepherds arrived and they made known the saying that had been told them according to this child. I mean, who wouldn't want to tell about what you just saw and experienced? About Jesus who is here. Such news of the Savior coming through this angelic display of God's glory would have been hard to keep in. But they come and tell about it. And in doing so, they magnify the glory, the glory of Christ to those who had not known what just happened. And shouldn't that be how every person who knows Christ should respond? We also sing a song this time of year, Go Tell It on a Mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, Go Tell It on a Mountain that Christ the Lord has come. Christian, you understand why God left us here is because we're supposed to go tell it. We're to magnify Christ, to make him known. 
And what better time of year to make him known than the very season when everybody's minds are on Christmas and the manger scene is all about, all around us. Let us make him known. Let us make him known and declare his glory. And this is what they do as they leave. They come and tell it. And then verse 20, they're telling it as they leave. They're glorifying and praising God for all they'd been told. But notice letter B, and lastly, by way of application, not only should his birth be magnified, but understand his birth should be meditated upon by us. And I love this little, little, little nugget that we get from Mary here. There's a lot of things you can pull out of Mary's responses. But in verse 19, after she hears, and they all hear about what the shepherds said, the Bible says that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We can only imagine how all these events and the news in the life of Mary and how it affected her from beginning to end. From the moment Gabriel shows up to... To, to the shepherds coming, and then later the wise men, the magi coming, all of these things. Mary's just cherishing, meditating, and stewing on all of the goodness of God in this. And Christian, one of the greatest practices that you can have in your Christian life is that of meditation. Taking time to pause, ponder, and just digest and think upon the reality of Christ the Lord coming to the world to save a sinner like you. To save a sinner like me. David writes in Psalm 143.5 On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. You and I ought to meditate on the coming of Christ this season. Don't let the season just come and go with all the busyness and all the things going here, going there, getting gifts, eating food, and all all of those things are wonderful. But don't let the busyness of this Christmas season strip you from the glory and joy of simply pondering upon what it is all actually about. God made flesh, a Savior born to save us from sin and to make us eternally new. C.S. Lewis said this, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. <laughs> and that's exactly what you are in Christ. You're a child of the King. Friend, the Savior's born. That's the message of Christmas, and what a powerful message it is. There is no more important message than this, the gospel. So let us praise him, let us magnify him, let us meditate upon him, let us make known this glorious news. And today, if you do not know the Savior, I call on you to understand, repent and believe on Christ. Christ is the Savior of sinners. You're a sinner, you need the Savior. You'll only know him by faith alone from the heart. And that's it. Let us stand to our feet as we close with the song.